Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks, two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of My Ruby Story. This week, we're talking to Carrie Miller. Carrie, do you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. This is Carrie Miller. <laughs> do you want to give just a brief introduction? We've had you on Ruby Rogues before and mm-hmm. uh, have chatted at various events, but uh, it's been a while, at least for me. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my name is Carrie Miller. I'm an engineer based in Seattle, Washington. I've lived up here in the, the wet upper left corner of the United States for a while and uh, quite enjoy it. Is that where you put the postage stamp or the return address? I can never remember. <laughs> we are the return address of the lower 48. Oh, there we go. Nice. So yeah, just so people, if they're out there looking, you were on episode 261, Networking Without Networking. You always have the most interesting titles, I swear. Oh, thank so that you. was back in 2016. And then we also had you on episode 191 of Ruby Rogues. And we talked about the developer happiness team, which was a terrific episode and really interesting to dive into what happiness means. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I really quite enjoyed that. That was a great experience. Yeah. I think we need to get you back on for something, but we'll see how that goes. So you're working at Travis CI now. I am. I am. So I am based in Seattle, Washington. Uh, Travis is based in Berlin. So I am about nine hours behind most of my teammates. So I am encountering a number of those, the remote worker issues that a lot of people falling into. I've been a remote worker for about five years now, though. So mm-hmm. I, I really, uh, really have taken to that lifestyle. You should just tell them, look, I'll get it done while you're asleep. <laughs> That's actually how it works out quite a bit. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Very cool. Well, uh, this this episode is focused around you and your story, how you got into programming, how you got into Ruby, you know, various contributions you've made to the programming community and things like that. So let's dive in and get your story. How did you get into programming? I think like a lot of people, I, or or many people, I was very fortunate to have early access to computers. I was uh, exposed to them because I grew up in in the one town in my little tiny New England state that had a nuclear plant which meant I went to a very affluent public school. So we had several Apple IIEs just mm-hmm. floating around. Yes. And we even had the thermal printer. And so it was a lot of fun. We, we used to write little programs using Turtle to print out city designs and skateboard ramps and all sorts of things. You know, things that we, we thought we would go build on the playground. And I got very good at that, writing in Apple Basic, that way back in the days of the, you know, the old floppy disks and whatnot. But I fell out of programming, like a lot of women do in high school and college. And I went into performance production, which is lighting, electrical, stage design for the, the stage, primarily focusing on theater and dance. And I came back to programming when I was beginning to do work on uh, larger touring shows for well-known rock acts. So I, I was going on a tour for six to eight weeks. And this was at the very beginning of when that industry was becoming computerized. They were using um, computerized control boards for programming the lighting design. Right. So you could switch between different looks as, mm-hmm. as a song went on or as a set. And a lot of that was using very, again, very rudimentary basic programming and 
it was about that time as well that the internet was taking off. And so I started to pick up a little bit of web design as part of that and eventually just parlayed that into a career in uh, early web development. That's cool. And I love all of the people that it's like, well, I was doing this thing and then we got computers to help us do the thing. And that's how I got into programming. It's, it's a surprising number of people. I think a lot of people get this idea that the majority of people out there in the programming community are, I went to school, I got a CS degree, and then I went out and I wrote Genius Code. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there are a lot of people out there that come in from other places. And it's, it's awesome because you look at a problem and you're like, you know, we kind of solved it this way with lighting. Or we solved it this way with this other thing. And I think it's an important aspect of the community and just the, the thought diversity that we get. Definitely. I think to be a successful engineer, there's, there's a list of, let's just say, 10 things that you should have. And we can argue all day long about what those 10 skills are. <laughs> but going through a CS program will get you three or four of those skills. Coming into computer programming from a different, a different way, that'll get you three or four different skills. Mm-hmm. You, you, it's just what do you bring in? What do you, what do you have at the very beginning of your career? And then you just go on from there and fill in the blanks as you go. Yep, absolutely. Well, and it seems like the people who kind of reach the pinnacle, I guess, of a programming career, they're the people that go out there and tend to interact with more of the people from different backgrounds and find those other, you know, of those 10 things, they find more of those. Somebody kind of coaches them along and, oh, there's this thing too. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly surprised about what, what I'm able to leverage from my previous career as a stagehand in, in my work today as an engineer. And the most, the most obvious one that, that always comes up is, you know, when you're working a stage production or a rock show, eight o'clock means eight o'clock. I mean, okay, sometimes it means 8.05, 8.10, but that's when the curtain goes up and you've you got you to ship constantly every day, every night. And so you learn how to triage, you learn how to find workarounds, you learn how to prioritize the experience of your audience or your customers ahead of necessarily your own comfort or your own, I don't want to say your own well-being, certainly, but just finding solutions that really, really work and serve the problem at hand. Yeah. What's your craziest experience as a stagehand before we move on with the interview? <laughs> the one that I like to share a lot, and I think the statute of limitations has probably worn off on this one. <clears throat> I, uh, I, I love it when it gets prefaced with, they can't come after me anymore for this. <laughs> yeah, like that one time, like the one time I found out that you actually can, uh, you can use a crescent wrench as a 50 amp fuse. <laughs> It'll last about two hours. That's, and I know this, that's how long steel will last. No, I think, I think one of the crazier stories has always been, you know, the different, the different predilections and habits are and the weird things they ask you to go fetch, like specific brands of lunch meat or a specifically a scented candle. I, I once worked a show, uh, it was like a regional fairgrounds and uh, had the bass player of a heavy metal rock band steal Cool Ranch Doritos out of my hand, stuff them into his face and like, Rawr! like a monster uh, heavy metal face at me and then rush on stage, still dripping uh, Dorito crumbs off of his face uh, to launch into the beginning of their set. <laughs> and to this day, I'm just still like, all right, that, that happened. Yeah. I want to see that happen at a dev conference. <laughs> I, I do. Some people need walk-up music. Some people need walk-up snack food. That's right. Absolutely. So you get into this, you're, you're building, I guess lighting setups and and set sequences in basic. So how do you get from there to Ruby? They seem like two different worlds to me. They really do. So I came up, uh, I started in the 90s when you could still learn the internet in a weekend. In mm-hmm. fact, that's I, I got the job because I was the only person, I got my first job because I was the only, per, the only applicant who had heard of the internet. 
Um, <laughs> I, went, I went to Barnes and Noble, which kids, that was a bookstore that existed in a physical place. And I bought, you know, teach yourself, you know, 24 hours to HTML. And so the, the big the big language those days was doing, doing things with CGI's and Perl and a little bit of JavaScript. And that's kind of where I, I sat. That was my sweet spot. So I made the jump from Perl and JavaScript into PHP in the mid-aughts because that's where the contracting work was. And right. as a Perl programmer approaching PHP, you were kind of like, oh, it's like a subset of Perl. It was just very heavily influenced. <laughs> nice. You know, with some, some, weird, uh, some weird additions, but it, it was fine. And I did that for a number of years. And then I, I worked at a, a startup that made helmet cameras for the sport, action sports industry. And we were doing a major rebrand and rewrite of all of our software. And that was when I made the jump to Ruby because we hired a contractor to come on and help us with our PHP site. And it just, it just was, it wasn't working. We were just having a hard time doing the things that we wanted to do with that language at that, you know, that, at that time. And specifically right. interfacing with video transcription software that was written in Java. And... Ruby had a library for that. And so we, we all collectively said, yes, let's go learn Ruby. And that was, I want to say, maybe eight years ago now. And I haven't really looked back. I've never regretted uh, making that jump. Well, you're still writing Ruby today, so... Yes. Yes, I am. I, I've dabbled with a few other languages. I picked up a little bit of Go for a while, and I've been exploring Elixir and a few other uh, languages just on the side, just to sort of see like what else is out there. Mm-hmm. And I think doing that is actually a really rich experience. And if anybody is hesitant about doing that, not seeing the value, if it doesn't actually pay the bills, going out and learning a language that has a slightly different paradigm or a slightly different twist on how it accomplishes the same exact sorts of computational tasks teaches you so much about that, that mother language, if you will, when you come back to it. So going out and like learning some Go and coming, you know, understanding how memory management works, um, how the C sort of inflected languages handle things, dipping into functional programming through Clojure and Elixir, coming back to then to like have a better understanding of Lambdas and procs and things in Ruby. Yeah. So, so you get in, you're doing Ruby. I mean, what was it that made you switch? Was it just that library or were there other aspects of the language? And how, how do you go about evaluating things to make that kind of a switch? Well, on a personal level, what made me switch to Ruby in the end and what made me super happy about it was this little book called Wise Poignant Guide to Ruby. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> classic. Classic, right? And I, I found that in the first few months of, of making the jump to Ruby. And it was the first time that I had ever worked with a computer language or a community that really said, mm-hmm. if you're weird, that's okay. That's totally fine. The whimsy and, and weirdness and the, the, the sheer joy that is present in that, uh, that why sort of brought to the work that, that they did really convinced me that there was, a, there was a place for me in Ruby. And it kind of reinvigorated my love of programming in a way. I was actually starting to drift away from programming and considering other career options at that time. But that, that really hooked me and brought me back into, into something that I actually really do love doing, mm-hmm. working with computers and people. So how long ago was that? I'm just curious. I want to say seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. It was right at the end of the Rails 2.3 era and Rails 3 was just coming out. Oh, yeah. Boy, I remember some of the angst around that. <laughs> <laughs> How many days has it been since Ruby drama has occurred? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's been a while now, at least, that, yeah, that I keep up on. So, uh, so yeah, so let's dive in. You know, some of the things that you've done in Ruby, I, I think most of what I've seen from you is mostly speaking and conference organizing. Have you done any other things that I'm missing here? or I've actually done quite a bit of work on different uh, code metrics gems. Oh, okay. Yeah, so like I got really fascinated several years ago with with that idea that we could we could write we could write tools that would tell us about the software that we write, mm-hmm. and they don't tell a complete story, but they tell 
a few facts about it that give us some clues to what, what, soft, what our software looks like, what it does under the hood, and how it operates. And I think the tool that I'm probably most known for is I'm pretty much the sole maintainer of a gem called Rails ERD, which you load up and you run it on the command line against your active record application. And it will generate a diagram of the model's within your application and their relationships to each other, which can be really handy for looking to understand, having a physical visual representation of how these models uh, interact and relate to each other. Mm-hmm. You can begin to find seams if you're working on a monolith and you're trying to identify things that, that need to get split off. I've written some secondary tools that will help you identify when an object actually has multiple objects inside of it just by looking at the language that methods use and which ma- methods are talking to themselves inside of an object, sometimes you can detect that there are workflow objects or service objects inside of a record object. So those sorts of tools are, are, uh, are very prominent. But more than that, I think the, the thing that, I, as you said, the thing I am most known for in the community is, is speaking. So what, what conferences have you spoke at and, and what were kind of your favorite venues and talks to give? That's always hard because uh, my fav- what, what is my favorite changes from day to day and probably hour to hour. <laughs> <laughs> She's human like me, folks. <laughs> right? I, I've had um, a lot of great experiences um, getting to travel around. Uh, in the last couple of years, a couple of my favorite conferences to speak at uh, was Bath Ruby last March, I believe, in Bath, UK. I was very fortunate to be able to do an opening keynote there, which was to answer the, the title was, Is Ruby Dead? A History of the English Language. And... <laughs> I think it's very emblematic of a lot of my talks in that, you know, the premise was basically asking, you know, is Ruby dead? Last year, there was a lot of, a lot of conversation around that idea. You know, is Ruby dying? Is it, is it a bad language to teach to new folks? You know, what, what's the future of Ruby? Is it a place you want to invest your time and energy right. into? And looking at, uh, I was, at the same time, I was, I was beginning to, to research the history of, of English and how it developed into the language that it is today. And English is kind of a weird language. And a lot of, of the, the ways that English differs from other languages really makes sense when you put it into a historical context. And so I put that story of English and how it has developed into the weird thing that it is against the story of Ruby and how Ruby has developed into the weird thing that it is. Right. Um, to, to sort of find those parallels to explore how things evolve. And as long as things exist in the world and have value, they're never really truly dead. And they, things make sense for a reason. So in the end, the answer, of course, is no, Ruby is obviously not dead. Uh, it's a wonderful language uh, with a great future. Awesome. So where do you see things going then for Ruby? I mean, we keep hearing about Ruby 3 and, uh, you know, the, the speed ups and enhancements that it's getting. Does that, does that matter or is it more of a community thing? I think that I think that that's really interesting, and there's some there's some neat stuff that's happening in Ruby three, and I'm really looking forward to. But for me, the thing, the cool thing that's about Ruby, and I hinted at this a little bit earlier when I was mentioning Wise Poignant Guide. Yes, people will drift away from from Ruby, and prominent Rubyists will go on to do um, interesting things in other languages. But that doesn't mean that Ruby's dying. That just means that Ruby's influence will spread out, and hopefully, as we go out and we do different projects and attempt different things with new technologies, we'll bring the best parts of Ruby. Ruby's true legacy, the wonderful people and the community that it created, and its approach and its ideas towards developer happiness and being a welcoming, friendly language that's easy to use and obvious, that those traits will get uh, exported to other communities and other languages. And you can, you can see that in how uh, languages that have caught on in the last five to 10 years have really been influenced by those sorts of ideas. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. 
I also want to talk a little bit about some of the conferences that you've organized. So I know that you were involved in at least one, I think it was in Portland. Or... Uh, Seattle, Washington. Yeah. Or Seattle. Okay. So the primary one, I've done a few of them now, uh, but the big one is Open Source and Feelings. That's the one I was thinking of. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that was based on, we did uh, two editions of that and we're kind of working on a third. A lot of us, uh, t- we had to take a year off for a variety of reasons and we're, we're looking at putting a, a third one on um, sometime in the next year or so. And that is a, that's a really fun conference. It's not really a soft talks conference, although we do joke that hard talks are welcome. It's really a, a conference of communities, people, and conversations that focused on where open source software meets with the communities of users and applications. So we talked to a lot of community organizers, bring in a lot of folks who are working on things like the Internet of Things and what does that mean to the future? What's the history of, say, robotics? The factors of race and facial recognition. How, what does the gig economy mean for artists and technologists? So bring, bringing people together to have conversations about these variety of, varieties of topics that the community of people around who attend the conference tell us is important. So rather than us just putting out and, and making a blind guess about, well, what's going to be neat in six months? Like, what kind of talks do we need to solicit for? Involving, involving community members who attend these conferences to say, what do, what's important to you? What conversations do you want to have? And then responding to that and trying to address those needs. So given those conversations that you're having, I'm a little curious because I'm going to CES in a few weeks. Oh, cool. So what should I be looking for there? Because, you know, I generally go look for stuff that people can program against. But some of these other trends and some of these other conversations I may miss out on if I'm not looking for them. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in the consumer electronics space, you know, we're seeing more and more things that are getting attached to the Internet, obviously, mm-hmm. and are inserting more and more technology into our daily lives. And I think there's a lot of conversations that in previous years may have been seen as more of the, the derided conspiracy tinfoil hat wearing people are mm-hmm. upset about the government putting, you know, microphones in their watches or something. And that's changing. That's changing. But we still have those concerns around privacy, around data control, around what, you know, what, what do these devices do and what do they bring to our lives beyond simply the, the efficiency that they, they purport to have for us. Right. I, I live in a house right now where there are six uh, Amazon Echo devices. And I swear, all I do is I, I just say, Alexa, play NPR. That's all I ever do with it. Do I need six of them in the house? I, they're not mine. I don't own them. So I, I think that's probably okay for me. <laughs> but <laughs> what, does that, what does that mean for, for the immediate, like my privacy concerns around that? What does that mean for how I interact with devices in my life? And what does that mean going forward into the future? I, I used to make fun of the, uh, the iPhone fingerprint reader, mm-hmm. but I, I have an old iPad now. And I, I, I'm constantly like, why isn't it reading my finger? I've just, I've just like made that like a normal thing. Whereas if you asked me previously to that, I think that's a ridiculous thing. It's probably adding five to $10 to the bottom line of this device. No one's going to use it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I hear that. And and I, I've thought the same things, right. It's like, I swear like every three months I'm like, okay, I got to get rid of all my echoes. I got to get rid of, you know, same thing with my fingerprint, right. It's like, oh, I would, I would never give my fingerprint to the federal government. Right. But I give it to Apple. No problem. Right. (laughs) So yeah, it's just, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, we had that. We had that. The panic when fingerprint scanners started to come around. That like, oh, you know, oh, someone would like would mug you and steal your finger, right? Or you know, cut off your fingertip or something. And still, and I, I, that's never happened. Yeah, I, I would wager. So you know, like the fears that we have about technology at the beginning, they never really are the fears that that actually manifest that we do need to worry about. But I think also similarly, the promise of technology is usually not really the promise that it brings. 
Yeah, I completely agree. So uh, I'm going to change gears on us a little bit. What are you working on now? Well, uh, as I said, I do work at uh, Travis CI, so I'm working on a lot of projects there. I'm also I also do a lot of work for Ruby Together. So if you when you have a problem with RubyGems.org and you open up a support ticket, that's coming to me. I'm I'm one of the people that monitors that queue and tries to help help folks out. But I also do a, quite a bit of bug support and whatnot to keep the website up and running as an important part of the Ruby infrastructure. Also, as I said, uh, working on organizing a pair of conferences for 2019. We'll see if that, uh, you know, knock on wood. Hopefully that those will come together and I'll have actually something to talk about in the next few months around that. Awesome. All right. Well, the last segment of the show is picks. Do you have some things you want to shout out about? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. I do. Now, the first one is, I have a couple. Uh, the first one is completely not practical. but Those are the folks, best ones. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you follow me on Twitter or uh, you attend any of my conference talks, you probably know that I have become completely obsessed with riding motorcycles in the last year and a half. In fact, in the last 12 months, I, I rode my motorcycle around 35,000 miles total across North America. And oh, wow. I just bought a brand new motorcycle. It's a 2018 Triumph Tiger 800 XCA. for the Wear out the old one, huh? I did, actually. As somebody <laughs> said to me recently, motorcycles are meant to be burned up, not rusted out. But I got plenty of use wow. out of that. So as a completely impractical pick, the Triumph Tiger 800 is a wonderful motorcycle, and I highly recommend it. For an actual practical pick, though, I spent six months riding around on the road between conferences and uh, just working across North America. And an application actually entered my life that made a lot of sense and works really, really well. And that is the Bear Rider app, B-E-A-R. And it's just another one of those uh, simple focused writing applications, but it does a couple things really, really well. And the first of them is it uses Markdown. It has first class support for Markdown, really nice theming that makes writing honestly a joy. That's all well and good. But the other thing that was really, really great for somebody who travels as much as I do, but the things it does really well is uh, syncing across applications. So it syncs from my iPad to my iPhone to all of my various iOS devices in the background. So I can, I can be at the side of a road somewhere and have an idea and jot down some notes. And those notes get synced up to all of my devices across the cloud without me having to, to do any sort of configuration or thinking about it or setup. And it's whenever that happens, it's kind of like a little bit of magic. When I open up my phone and there's the document that I've been working on for a week and I can, I can sit at a picnic table in a beautiful place and work on it for a little bit or you know, wherever I happen to be just to continue uh, to work and have ideas and to capture those things. And so it's the first true virtual notebook that I've really come across that uh, actually works as advertised. Nice. Very cool. 
I'm going to jump in here, I guess, with a few picks or shout outs. So a few of the ones that I've been uh, playing with lately, uh, I decided that I needed to run a marathon because, you know, marathons, right? And uh, I've, I've done runs, I've done 10Ks and 5Ks, and, and I really have enjoyed that. And running just makes me feel good anyway. So, you know, I, I, I was like, well, I should just run a marathon. And I remember when I was, what, like 12, my dad ran a marathon. And he ran it down in uh, St. George, Utah. And, and so I was like, okay, well, you know, I lost my dad this year. So I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll go run the marathon that he ran, right? So I, I, I was thinking about it. And my friend, John Sanmez, he, he got on my case and he's like, if you're going to do it, just do it. <laughs> so I went and figured out when it was. And then I hired a running coach because I have not been great about sticking to a running program for more than a few months. And so I figured if I hired a coach and they were telling me what to do, you know, they could coach me through any of the things that usually make me drop off my routine. And anyway, so that's been great. So I'm just going to shout out some of the stuff that I've been using for that. Uh, One of them is a Garmin Forerunner 235 watch. And it has a GPS built in. So it'll, you know, you go run through the neighborhood. It's freezing here. I'm I'm not running outside these days. (laughs) I, I asked my coach, I'm like, can I run on a treadmill until like March? And she's like, yeah, I don't care. So I've been running at the gym on the treadmill because I am not running outside in that cold. But that being said, yeah, I, I, I went on the, you know, I've been doing the runs and uh, it, it tracks my progress. So it's been really great uh, having it kind of track my runs and show me my heart rate and things like that. So that's been really, really terrific. It has an app that integrates with your phone and does all the health stuff with HealthKit because I'm using an iPhone. Yes, I still give my fingerprints to Apple. But yeah, so that's been terrific. The app that we use is called V.02. And she puts my workouts in there. You can add a coach in there. You don't have to, but that's what I've done. And then she puts my workouts in there and I go run them. So uh, I've just been doing intervals, you know, run two minutes, walk a minute. And uh, yeah, I the first week I did it, I was like going all out on my runs and I was totally dead by the time I was done. So I've kind of toned it back a little bit, especially since the marathon's an endurance event. So if she tells me to go all out again, I will. But I was like, I'm going to step it back a little bit. So you'll notice my uh, pace is going to drop a little bit. But she, I haven't heard anything back yet. But she's been terrific. And the coach is McCurdyTrained.com. And uh, the guy that owns the company, he actually gave me a phone call after I filled out the form and then assigned me a coach. So he talked to me, figured out what I was doing, figured out what I wanted to do. And I've been super happy with them. So yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss that out there as well. But yeah, just been really, really enjoying running. I could not tell you what brand my shoes are because I bought them quite a while ago and they're blue and I wear them. <laughs> but, and you know, I always get asked that by other runners. I'm like, oh, I don't know. But yeah, so that's what I'm doing and, and I'm really, really enjoying it. So if you want to know where I'm going to be on October 5th, I'm going to be in St. George, Utah, running my guts out on the road. And uh, Wow, good luck with that. Yeah, thanks. That's awesome. All right, Carrie, if people want to find you online, where do they go? I'm Carrie Zor everywhere. K-E-R-R-I-Z-O-R. That's uh, Twitter, Instagram, GitHub, et cetera, et cetera. Now, is there a story behind that handle? There is. I was years and years and years ago, I was playing the Pokemon trading card game with a young person in my life who uh, came up, we, we started coming up with Pokemon names for each other and Carrie Zor was mine uh, after uh, uh, Charizor or, or something like that. I don't remember uh, exactly what. That's how Carrie Zor came about. That's awesome. So uh, funny side note, my family got together for our Christmas thing and we do white elephant gifts. And 
one of the side effects of my dad passing this year, he had boxes and boxes. I'm not kidding, like a full storage unit full of sports paraphernalia and Pokemon cards. Wow. And uh, he just loved that stuff. And he you know, he actually owned a shop at one point that, that sold that and, you know, hired my brothers and sisters so that they could have a, a job and learn how to work and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, so my brother, he filled up like four boxes full of Pokemon cards as the white elephant gift. And they're, they're the Japanese ones, right? So on the back, it says pocket monsters, not Pokemon. Oh, wow. Got it. And, and yeah, everything on the front's in Japanese. And my dad, uh, he served his mission. He was a missionary in, in Japan when he was younger, mm-hmm. before he met my mom. So anyway, so now I've got the, you know, you can steal presents from other people is the way we play it. And uh, yeah, so somebody stole what I had, which was awful. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I wound up stealing those from my brother-in-law. So I've got a box now full of Japanese Pokemon cards. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what to do with So. <laughs> That's awesome. Yep. All right, Carrie. Well, thank you for coming and talking to us. Oh, always. Let's let's get you back on the show and talk about something on Ruby Rogues. Yeah, definitely. I love that. All right, I'll shoot you an email and we'll wrap this one up and we will catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.